You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to Aspie's special podcast series, the Sydney Dialogue Summit Sessions. This short series features conversations with leading government, industry and civil society voices on the sidelines of the Sydney Dialogue, Aspie's major summit on critical, emerging cyber and space technologies. In the third episode of the series, Justin Bassey speaks to Ili Baraktari, CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project, about strategic competition and technology. Justin asks Ili about his work leading the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and how democracies can continue to be secure and prosperous in the artificial intelligence era. Ili Baraktari, President and CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. Welcome to the Aspie Pod. Thanks for having me, Justin. Absolute pleasure. And it, and it really is a pleasure to interview all experts we do on the pod, of course. Uh, but this opportunity is a particularly special one for me. Uh, we're in the middle of the Sydney Dialogue, which focuses on the impact of critical technologies on society, security and sovereignty. Uh, and there are few people globally who have had more policy influence over the intersection of technology and security than Yili. While many people around the world will, of course, know the likes of Eric Schmidt, who has invested so heavily in technological security research, Yili has been a key strategist and advisor behind the scenes, helping to wake up the democratic world to how authoritarian regimes are using our very own technology against our states, our institutions, and our societies. So he and his body of work, including now at the Special Competitive Studies Project, have inspired me, the team at ASPE, and the work here at the Sydney Dialogue. Yuli, you have been trying to tell governments and the world about technology's role in strategic competition for years. So can we go back to your time leading the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, a three-year project which presented a strategy for winning the artificial intelligence era? The project was clearly ahead of its time, but is now a topic in the news most days. Can you tell us about that work and how you became involved? Thanks, Justin. Uh, and I want to praise you and the entire ASPE team for putting together an amazing dialogue. Uh, congratulations. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the panels uh, today and, and tomorrow. So about four years ago, United States Congress created the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And I think uh, they did it uh, for two reasons. Number one is they saw an incredible and powerful technology uh, being developed in private sector. And uh, our government inability to really get ahead of this and getting ourselves organized for this kind of a technology that we are now seeing happening in front of our eyes since November with the release of ChatGPT. And I think the second reason why they created this commission was primarily because of uh, the trends and signals coming out of China, where they saw a state-led effort to invest and to get ahead in a critical technology such as artificial intelligence, uh, because Chinese leaders knew at that time that this is a key technology that would get them ahead in terms of economic, societal, and ultimately national security benefits. And so with that in mind, our Congress created a commission. I was uh, not fully aware of what commissions are before that, to be honest with you, Justin. Uh, but uh, the most famous one in our uh, in our political system is probably the 9-11 commission. So Congress usually creates these commissions either when something went wrong and they want to do so like a a look back and to find what went wrong and things that we need to do in our system to get it right. Or there is something coming and we lack sort of like a policy direction on how we get ahead of of that uh, the, of that issue. So in terms of the AI, I think Congress was really ahead because they saw this was coming. So they created a commission 
and I was fortunate to leave the team um, on the NSCAI. Uh, and we worked uh, for about two and a half years and we provided Congress with a voluminous report of about 759 pages that you have seen. Yeah. Uh, and out of that report so far, we have about 55 pieces of legislation that have been passed, not to mention policies, executive orders that have been inspired by the report and the work we have done. <clears throat> but as you mentioned, uh, and, and the things we are observing nowadays is we're in the midst of this technology revolution and how we get ourselves organized, how do we bring our allies and partners around uh, this technology competition will really matter for, for decades uh, and probably for the rest of this uh, century uh, in really getting ownership and in really getting ourselves organized around this technology. Uh, it really is uh, fabulous to understand uh, that bit of history to have 55 pieces of legislation on the boil as a result uh, amongst a whole range of other policies that have come out of it, uh, that really does show your impact. I think the, for our listeners, that, that combination that you described of uh, governments recognising that the private sector uh, was innovating uh, at uh, unprecedented levels, along with how Beijing recognised early the potential of this technological advancement, that combination has been a struggle for liberal democratic governments. Uh, and it is uh, a big part of uh, your message. No, you're absolutely right. As I noted uh, in the panel earlier, uh, I think we had two select trends happening in our democratic societies writ large when you think about it. Number one is, uh, after World War II, government was the center of innovation. Everything was coming out of our labs. Everything was being invented, funded by government, not just the United States, but in Australia and elsewhere. At the end of the Cold War, the government really starts like pulling down on these investments and private sector starts picking up and bec becomes the center of innovation. In the mid of the last decades, like from 2010 to 2020, there is another trend happening, which is China. Uh, all of a sudden, all the promises of where China was going, uh, you know, from the being a member of WTO to everything else slowly starts to shape uh, where you see the real China in terms of the investments, the intent and the strategies, what they were trying to pursue with these kind of technologies. So these two trends really brought us to this new phase in which we have to rediscover what means a public-private partnership in democratic societies, where technology is happening in private sector, and these are groundbreaking, really powerful technologies. They're gonna change how we live, how we get ourselves educated, and how we build our militaries. At the same time, while we're competing with China. And so we are really in the midst of this. And I know ASPI and as well as SCSP really identify this time is probably the most critical time of our lives. Uh, the White House National Security Strategy calls it the decisive decade. And I really agree with that because we are really seeing these two trends happening at the same time. While we need to be ourselves organized, while we need to be focused and centered around how to get ahead in this competition. You refer often to uh, competition uh, and uh, us actually having to be an active player in the competition rather than just bystanders. Uh, so the competition or the tech race is a combination of a, of a series of sprints uh, within a marathon. Uh, we need to be doing it now. We need to be doing it over a long period of time. You've taken us through your history on the AI Commission. Uh, you then transitioned to a new project where you are now, the Special Competitive Studies Project. The genesis of the SCSP uh, is fascinating itself. It goes back to the Cold War competition uh, with, the, with the Soviets. Can you take us through the SCSP's formation and why it's so important to learn from the past, both our mistakes and our successes? 
Uh, great question. Um, so when we got to the end of the AI commission, as you know, these commissions are timely. So we only had a mandate for about three years uh, from uh, from Congress and resources to uh, conduct our mission. The the thinking at the end of the AI commission was that uh, this is only the beginning. And when you look at so like my entry chapter uh, at the AI commission's final report is I call it the the beginning of the beginning. And really, this is the beginning of the beginning. And I think what we are ex what we are living right now is really that AI future that we wrote about it maybe three years ago that is happening and accelerating uh, every day. But when we got to the end of the AI Commission, at the urging of Dr. Eric Schmidt and um, Dr. Kissinger, we look at what can be another model that can help us get ourselves organized. Because the more you look at the AI competition, the more issues you discover that we need to fix in our society, in our economy, in our national security. If, uh, you know, like anytime you're given a task, and, and I'm sure you, Justin, know this, when somebody gives you a task to do something, you can read your mandate really broadly and uh, you can boil the ocean, or you can read your mandate really narrowly and say like, oh, I'm just going to answer the mandate, which is delivery report in 12 months about AI. I think when we started looking at the AI competition in our uh, commission's days, we saw so many other deficiencies we got to fix in our society not just domestically, uh, our relationship with our allies and partners, um, to get ourselves on the path to success. And so when, when we got to the end of the AI Commission's work, the model that really was compelling to us was this model from the 50s, where Dr. Kissinger led a group called Special Studies Project that looked at how we get ourselves organized to a competition against Soviet Union. And just to reflect a little bit from the 50s, this is the time when Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite, that caught American society by surprise. They were about to reach the nuclear parity with the United States military. And so if you look at the parallels, they're really striking where we are right now in the tech competition with China. Mm. Uh, you're facing a competitor that is organized, that has made incredible progress in building and deploying a lot of these kind of capabilities. Um, and you're facing a competitor that unlike the Soviet Union is a full spectrum competitor. It's not just a competitor on the military domain. It's a competitor in the economic, financial, societal, uh, global, and ultimately military aspect. And so how do we get ourselves organized? How do we fix three pieces uh, was the goal of the SCSP that we launched. Number one is how do we build a country, a society, an economy that is uh, resilient for the future we're, we're entering, uh, where technology is the center of competition, how do we build a global network of partners and allies that build these technologies together? Uh, in none of these technologies we discussed today, quantum, AI, semiconductors, United States cannot lead alone. We need and we lead because of our allies and partners. Um, and the third piece is once we have the two first elements in place, how do we compete more effectively against China globally? How do we slow them down on, on critical technologies that we don't want them to get ahead because it has military and national security implications? And so that's the purpose of the Special Competitive Studies Project. Uh, it's a three-year project, like the project from the 50s, because I personally believe that if we end up in March of 2025 and you and I are having the same conversation here at the Sydney Dialogue 4.0, that we have failed and that we will enter a very risky period for our countries for our democracies around the world, because China has a plan. They've been pretty you know, transparent and 
you know, open about their plans of where they want to be in 25, 27, 2030. And I just think that we need a sense of urgency among our societies, our government and our democracies to how to get ahead when it comes to this technology competition. Ily, I think for our listeners, it'll be absolutely obvious to them why I uh, get so much inspiration uh, from you, that clarity of thinking, and uh, even to uh, be able to uh, espouse that to actually have success, uh, you can't ignore the obstacles that come in your way. You've got to be able to overcome them. Absolutely. Uh, really, really key. You also have explained really well uh, the uh, genesis of the SCSP in terms of uh, the competition with the Soviet Union through the 50s. Cold War analogies, any historical analogies can be tricky because of context and change, uh, but the silencing of those looking to the past to understand how we've got to uh, where we are today uh, is, in my view, the more significant problem we have with Beijing, uh, their narrative uh, that so often says don't have Cold War thinking, that they've actually scared many Western politicians and commentators uh, from thinking about it at all, uh, meaning that we don't learn from what happened uh, in the past. Uh, and uh, for all the differences, uh, one of the key similarities is the centrality of technology. Uh, you refer to the Sputnik moment being a real catalyst for action in the United States and with partners. Do you think, uh, Ily, that uh, the democratic world now needs another Sputnik moment? Uh, to be woken up, uh, or do you think we've already had that moment? I think in totality, Justin, um, when you look at everything that has happened for the last couple of years coming out of Beijing in terms of uh, deploying, uh, building, and using these technologies both against their minorities first, and then deploying 5G at global scale, um, advanced hypersonics, um, you know, even the TikTok deployment around the world, um, you can clearly see that the moment has happened in totality. Uh, now, whether or not we, we live in the times where a one satellite launch creates that reaction among our democratic, uh, you know, citizens, uh, I think it's a different time, different context, probably. But I think in totality, uh, all the actions we've seen out of Beijing leads me to believe that we have passed that moment. The issue that, uh, just going back to your Cold War analogy, is uh, getting ahead in this technology race is not just about competing more effectively against China. As you can see, everything that has happened since November with ChatGPT is that these technologies are going to be so powerful for our own benefits, yeah. for our economy and how we build the future of our educational system, our healthcare. So with or without competition with China, we need to make the right investments. We need to get ourselves organized and we need to stay ahead because these technologies need to be built on democratic values and norms. And if we stay behind, then somebody else is going to fill that vacuum. And I think in that, in that instance, it will be China. We have seen what have happened with 5G. We saw what happened with advanced hypersonics and the numerous solar, uh, solar panels, uh, drones. Uh, anytime our government or private sector took an eye off the ball from these technologies, there was another actor that stepped in yeah. and filled that void. Yeah. And I think because these technologies are going to be so instrumental, like any past technologies for how we build our economy and our society, we have to really put more focus. We got to be ourselves organized and we got to stay ahead. Completely agree. I think one of, unfortunately, the lessons we took from the Arab Spring uh, was a mistake that we thought uh, in the liberal democratic world that social media was uncontrollable, whereas uh, the likes of Beijing and Moscow uh, saw the threat uh, and they worked out how to use it towards uh, to, for their benefit and, and against us. And I think, can I add just one more thing, yeah. Justin, is 
how do we as democracies build these technologies will matter for the rest of the world too because in the absence of all platforms china has walked in and gave these countries heavily subsidized technologies they they had no choice than to take it uh i mean you and i probably would take it you know if there are some cheap capable you know next generation platforms so this is not just a matter of democratic world getting ahead and staying ahead of these technologies but really offering the rest of the world alternative platforms that they can use uh and they can build their societies and economies think about africa south southeast asia all these countries that have a lot of people you know uh they're critical for the next generation of development of the of the world and so how do we get to offer them the next generation platform will really depend on how we build them and how we stay ahead of them yeah and i think this is definitely one of those cases where whether we like it or not the competition is happening and so if we don't play uh the game will just keep on uh, going on without us there are signs though aren't there Eli, that democratic governments are aware that we can't be passive uh, last august for example the us government passed the, the chips and science act which invests about 280 billion dollars to bolster US semiconductor capacity one of the three uh technologies that you speak so highly of in, in terms of its importance to our future what's your response specifically to the chips act uh, and uh, what it does uh, for competition uh so justin i have a personal story about this because as i as i mentioned to you about how do you read the mandate when somebody gives you the mandate uh, i remember about 4 years ago when we started the ai commission some of the commissions that were much more well versed into the semiconductor world came to us and said like look we got to look at the semiconductor piece i was like look i understand uh but the commission's mandate is only to look at ai and so after a lot of back and forth you know uh, i'm glad they prevailed uh because they really made a compelling case that in order for united states to stay ahead with allies and partners in the ai space you need to dominate the hardware piece especially the advanced manufacturing of the chips uh which you know china was narrowing our lead uh because of their investments because of the fabs they were building domestically and everything else and so one of the chapters in our final report was really the investments needed to stay ahead in the hardware piece that i think really informed the ultimately the chips act and so we really stood behind the chips act as something that was necessary and timely um it took 3 years in our political and democratic system for an act like that to be passed um my personal hope is that the la- the chips act is not the last act because we have to come to conclusion as democracies that the government has to step in and make necessary investments on these critical technologies and i would argue after the chips act the next big government investment should come in the biotech space because when you put together ai and hardware and where biotech is going to go next uh these are the areas that will keep our economy driving or will serve as the engine of our economy and our society and i think going back to this is anytime we face these kind of a dilemmas uh i think the government should step in and provide the necessary resources buy down the risk and enable the private sector to really scale these capabilities that are so critical for our society really well said and i think your point there about uh, governments needing to step in is a really crucial one uh, government stepping in doesn't mean interference that stifles innovation uh, it means government involvement to help protect 
society. Uh, so your point that the CHIPS Act can't be the last act, uh, governments need to act, is, is such a crucial discussion for us, for us to have. Uh, again, the, the interference is happening uh, anyway, uh, largely from authoritarian regimes. Uh, and can I just add, yeah. I mean, and this is not new to democracies. I mean, we've done this before, you know, how we got to the moon uh, and how we created NASA, the Operation Warp Speed. When you think about it, our government bought five different vaccines on five different platforms. So they bought down the risk without knowing if the vaccines will be successful. Two of them proved, proved to be successful. And the government bought the entire supply chain, the whole distribution network, and then made sure that within six weeks, I believe, or eight weeks, 25 million Americans got the first shot. So that's when the government sees these critical opportunities and out of necessity has to step in and really provide the necessary resources so we stay ahead or provide these kind of vaccines so we stay healthy and, uh, and, and, and provide it to the rest of the world. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it is absolutely crucial to be able to uh, have a risk management approach, uh, not a risk aversion uh, approach. Uh, you've got a very strong view, Ily, that uh, while the US, of course, needs to be competitive, uh, that the US can't do these things alone. Can you take our listeners through why partnerships uh, are so important uh, in the technological competition that we're in? Look, every document we have published, if you if you read them carefully, we, we highlight the importance of our allies and partners. In none of these technologies, the United States is leading alone. In none of them. Uh, either it relies on uh, talented individuals from around the world that are working in United States universities or companies, or it's a combination of labs that exist in some of our allies and uh, partners nations uh, or companies that through some kind of a coalition or merger have come together to stay ahead in these kind of technologies. So if you look at all these three uh, technologies that I mentioned earlier, we got to stay ahead, AI chips and, and 5G. In none of them, United States cannot make it alone. On 5G, with us, some European companies, Australian and probably Japanese companies, we don't have an exportable 5G model to yeah. provide to the rest of the world. On chips, if it wasn't for TSMC and ASMLs in the Netherlands, United States would have not been at the, or the democ democratic world would have not been at the cutting edge of the advanced manufacturing of these semiconductors. And on AI, without universities, without talented people, private sector companies, we still would not be ahead of AI. The one good thing that makes me really happy about what has happened in the AI space since November is that all the best large language models are coming out of the Western companies. And that tells you that with the right investments, with the right people, with the right educational models, you can stay ahead because the companies will continue to innovate and stay ahead in this space. I completely agree. Aspie has uh, done a lot of work in this area in the last 18 months in a project that uh, is very much supported by uh, you and your team, uh, Ili. We call it the Critical Tech Tracker. Uh, and while on its face it does look uh, like Beijing, China is uh, putting heavy investment into the full range of critical technologies, a, a key out of this research that we have done shows the importance of partnerships, uh, that along with the US, that the Quad Partners, uh, India, having the potential to be the next tech powerhouse, uh, Australia as well, punching above our weight, uh, the UK, uh, which shows the importance of groups like AUKUS. So partnerships is the way that we're going to uh, stay in front and uh, and be competitive as we as we need to be. And I would, I, would add, I would add just in that, you know, you mentioned the 50s and the model. In the 50s, the nuclear 
technology was the technology of that era that got us organized. We created the NATO alliance. We created the nuclear deterrence. If today the, these technologies or the organizing principle of our society and our economy and ultimately national security, we need to look beyond our traditional allies and partners. And I think, you know, the AUKUS, the Quad efforts, they are really the early indications on how these like frameworks will look like in today's world. I 100% agree with you that India plays a critical role in this. Israel, South Korea, Japan, these are all new actors that I think we need to get ourselves completely differently organized when it comes to technology competition. Exactly right. Finally, for those of us who know how important you are and your team to democracy and technology, the Special Competitive Studies Project is again, like the AI Commission, time limited. You have said many times, and it's a really important point, that we can't be talking about the same things in 2025. We have to have had breakthroughs and we have to have had success. Are you looking uh, for what happens after 2025? Uh, what's next for you and your team? So generally, Justin, I don't like to think about what's next. Uh, I like this timely project because you're so focused on deliverables right now um, because the time will expire, number one. Number two is, as you mentioned, I really believe deeply that if we are having the same conversation two years from now, that we will have a completely different end of this decade which would be a really high risk uh, with not many options for us. We depicted how that alternative future would look like in our report we published in the fall, where China would be in the lead for many of these things. Uh, I like to mention to a lot of my interlocutors that if we continue with the trends as they are, we might as well wake up in 2025, 2030 timeframe and everything we're doing in our digital life will one way or another go through Beijing. And I don't think none of us in our democratic societies would like to see that. So that's why I like to uh, be pushing the sense of urgency and our documents really talk with that tone. Uh, but I also don't want to sound uh, like defeatist in, in, in our writing because I believe uh, as an immigrant in America that the future really belongs to the democratic societies, that that's where the invention happens because of the creativity that exists and how democracies empower individuals. Um, and I think we just need a sense of urgency to get ahead and stay ahead. Uh, it's a great way to uh, to end the pod, Ili Baraktari. It's been an absolute pleasure. I do encourage all of our listeners uh, to uh, go and read about the Special Competitive Studies Project, the vital work uh, that you and your team are doing. I hope that we talk many times between now and the end of your project. Uh, and I likewise would like to think that uh, when we talk in 2025, that we're talking about something new uh, and that we have shown the urgency needed now so that we're talking very, very positively then. Yili, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Justin. And we truly appreciate the partnership we have with ASPI. Uh, I talk about it as a model of partnership we have globally, and I look forward to many more other partnerships with you. That's all we have time for today on policy, guns, and money. Thanks for listening.